Section 66 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Natter. Chapter 19, The Eve of the Reformation, by Henry Charles Lear, Part 3. In fact, one of the most urgent symptoms of the necessity of a new order of things was the complete divorce between religion and morality. There was abundant zeal in debating minute points of faith, but little in evoking from it an exemplary standard of life. As Pius II said of the conventual Franciscans, they were generally excellent theologians, but gave themselves little trouble with virtue. The sacerdotal system, developed by the dialectics of the schoolmen, had constructed a routine of external observances through which salvation was to be gained not so much by abstinence from sin as by its pardon through the intervention of the priest, whose supernatural powers were in no way impaired by the scandals of his daily life. Except within the pale of the pagan renaissance, never was there a livelier dread of future punishment, but this punishment was to be escaped not by amendment, but by confession, absolution, and indulgences. This frame of mind is exemplified by the condottier Vitellozzo Vitelli, who, when after a life steeped in crime, he was suddenly strangled by Cesare Borgia in 1502, felt no more poignant regret than that he could not obtain absolution from the Pope, and that Pope was Alexander VI. Society was thoroughly corrupt, perhaps less so in the lower than in the higher classes, but no one can read the Lenten sermons of the preachers of the time, even with full allowance for rhetorical exaggeration, without recognizing that the world has rarely seen a more debased standard of morality than that which prevailed in Italy in the closing years of the Middle Ages. Yet at the same time never were there greater outward manifestations of devotional zeal. A man like San Giovanni Capistrano could scarce walk the streets of a city without an armed guard to preserve his life from the surging crowds eager to secure a rag of his garments as a relic, or carry away some odour of his holiness by touching him with a stick. Venice, which cared little for an interdict, offered in vain ten thousand ducats in 1455 for a seamless coat of Christ. Siena and Perugia went to war over the wedding ring of the Virgin. At no period was there greater faith in the thaumaturgic virtue of images and saintly relics. Never were religious solemnities so gorgeously celebrated. Never were processions so magnificent or so numerously attended. Never were fashionable shrines so largely thronged by pilgrims. In his Enheiridion Militis Christiani, written in 1502, and approved by Adrian II, then head of the University of Louvain, Erasmus had the boldness to protest against this new kind of Judaism, which placed its reliance on observances, like magic rites, which drew men away from Christ. And again, in 1519, in a letter to Cardinal Albrecht of Mainz, he declared that religion was degenerating into a more than Judaistic formalism of ceremonies, and that there must be a change. A priesthood trained in this formalism, which had practically replaced the ethical values of Christianity, secure that its supernatural attributes were unaffected by the most flagitious life, and selected by such methods as were practiced by the curia, and imitated by the prelates, could not be expected to rise above the standards of the community. 
rather indeed were the influences to which the clergy were exposed adapted to depress them below the average they were clothed with virtually irresponsible power over their subjects they were free from the restraints of secular law and they were condemned to celibacy in times when no man was expected to be continent for three hundred years it had been the constant complaint that the people were contaminated by their pastors and the complaint continued after the death of calixtus the third in fourteen fifty eight the cardinals about to enter the conclave were told in the address made to them by domenico de domenici bishop of torcello quote, the morals of the clergy are corrupt they have become an offence to the laity all discipline is lost from day to day the respect for the church diminishes the power of her censures is almost gone End quote. In 1519, Brissonnet, bishop of Meux, in his diocesian synod, did not shrink from describing the church as a stronghold of vice, a city of refuge from transgression, where one could live in safety, free from all fear of punishment. The antagonism towards the priesthood, thus aroused among the people, was indicated in the career of Hans Boheim, a wandering musician, who settled in Niklashausen where he announced revelations from the virgin she instructed him to proclaim to her people that she could no longer endure the pride the avarice and the lust of the priesthood and that the world would be destroyed because of their wickedness unless they should speedily amend their ways tithes and tribute should be purely voluntary tolls and customs dues and game preserving should be abolished rome had no claim to the primacy of the church purgatory was a figment and he had power to rescue souls from hell the fame of the inspired preacher spread far and wide between the rhineland and meissen crowds from all quarters flocked to hear him and he frequently addressed assemblages rated at twenty or thirty thousand souls who brought him rich offerings in fourteen seventy six rudolf bishop of würzburg put an end to this dangerous propaganda by seizing and burning the prophet but belief in him continued until Dieter of Mainz placed an interdict on the church of Niklashausen in order to check the concourse of pilgrims who persisted in visiting it. Perhaps the most complete and instructive presentation which we have of the opinions and aspirations of the medieval populations is embodied in the ample series of the Spanish Cortes, published by the Real Academia de la Historia, in the petitions of Cayers of these representative bodies we find an uninterrupted expression of hostility towards the church unrelieved by any recognition of services whether as the guardian of religious truth or as the mediator between god and man to the castilian of the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries it was simply an engine of oppression an instrument through which rapacious men could satisfy their greed and inflict misery on the people by its exactions and its constantly encroaching jurisdiction enforced through unrestricted power of excommunication bitter were the reiterated complaints of the immunity which it afforded to criminals and there was constant irritation at clerical exemption from public duties and burdens in short it seems to have been regarded as a public enemy and the slight respect in which it was held is amply evidenced in the repeated complaints of the spoliation of churches which were robbed of their sacred vessels apparently without compunction the popular literature of the period similarly reflects this mingled contempt and hatred for the priesthood 
the franciscan thomas murner who subsequently was one of the most savage opponents of luther in the curious rhymed sermons which in fifteen twelve he preached in frankfort on the main and which under the names of the schelmenzunft and the narrenbeschwerung had a wide popularity is never tired of dwelling on the scandals of all classes of the clergy from bishops to monks and nuns or are worldly rapacious and sensual when the lay-lord hath shorn the sheep the priest comes and fairly disembowels it the begging friar follows and gets what he can and then the pardoner if a bishop is in want of money he sends around his fiscal among the parish priests to extort payment for the privilege of keeping their concubines in the nunneries the sister who has the most children is made the abbess if christ were on earth to-day he would be betrayed and judas would be reckoned as honest men the devil is really the ruler of the church whose prelates perform his work they are too ignorant to discharge their duties and require coadjutors it would be well for them could they likewise have substituted in hell the wolf preached and sang mass so as to gather the geese round him and then seized and ate them so it is with prelate and priest who promise all things and pretend to care for souls until they get their benefices when they devour their flocks the immense applause with which these attacks on the abuses of the church were everywhere received and others of a similar character in eulenspiegel sebastian brandt's narrenschiff johann faber's tractatus de ruine ecclesia planctu and the encomium moria of erasmus their translation into many languages and wide circulation throughout europe show how thoroughly they responded to the popular feeling how dangerously the church had forfeited the respect of the masses and how deeply rooted was the aversion which it had inspired the priests hated rome for her ceaseless exactions and the people hated the priests with perhaps even better reason so bitter was this dislike that in fifteen o two erasmus tells us that among laymen to call a man a cleric or a priest or a monk was an unpardonable insult this antagonism was fostered by the pulpit which until the invention of printing and the diffusion of education was the only channel of access to the masses neglected by the bishops involved in worldly cares and indulgence and by the parish priests too ignorant and too indolent to employ it the duty of preaching fell for the most part to volunteers who like thomas murner were usually mendicant friars and consequently hostile to the secular clergy their influence on public opinion was great with coarse and vigorous eloquence they attacked abuses of all kind whether in church or state and with an almost incredible hardihood they aroused the people to a sense of their wrongs a favourite topic was the contrast between the misery of the lower classes and the luxury of the prelates their hawks and hounds their splendid retinues and the lavish adornment of their female companions the licentiousness of the clergy was not spared according to one of them the wealth of the church only serves as a pair of bellows to kindle the fires of lust the earliest of these bold demagogues of whom we have authentic details was fulk de nully who in the closing years of the twelfth century traversed france calling the people to repentance and listened to by immense crowds he was especially severe on the vices of the clergy and it is related of him that at lisieux to silence him they threw him into prison and loaded him with chains but his saintliness had won for him thaumaturgic power and he walked forth unharmed thomas connect 
a Carmelite of Brittany, was another wandering preacher who produced an immense impression wherever he went, and we are told that his invectives against the priesthood won him especial applause. But when, in 1432, he went to Rome to lash the vices of the Curia, he was speedily found to be a heretic, and he perished at the stake. Although St. Bonaventura deprecated, on account of the scandals and quarrels which it provoked, the mendicant preacher's habit of attacking the corruption of the priesthood, it was ever a favorite topic, and the preaching of such men as Oliver Maillard, Geiler von Kaisenberg, Guillaume Pepin, Jean Cleret, Michel Menon, and a host of others unquestionably contributed largely to stimulate the irresistible impulse which finally insisted on reform. With the invention of printing, their eloquence reached larger audiences, for their sermons were collected and printed and received a wide circulation. That a reform of the church in its head and its members was necessary had long been generally conceded. For more than a century Europe had been clamoring for it. For this it had gathered its learning and piety at Constance, 1414-1418. to The Curia had skillfully eluded the demands, and the Assembly delegated the task to future councils, which, by the decree frequence, it decreed should be convoked at regular intervals of seven years. In obedience to this decree, a council met at Pavia and Siena in 1423-1424, to where the effort was again made and again frustrated. When the term came around in 1431, and the church, assembled at Basel, determined not to be balked again, the resolute energy of the reformers speedily caused a rupture with the papacy, and the Basilian canons, aimed at some of the more crying abuses, were steadfastly ignored. The responsibility thus devolved upon the papacy, which had rendered abortive the efforts of the councils, and, after its bitter experience at Basel, had successfully resisted the constantly recurring demands for the enforcement of the decree frequence. To meet this responsibility, successive popes, from Martin V to Leo X, issued reformatory decrees, the promulgation and non-observance of which only served as an acknowledgment of the evil and of the impossibility of its correction. At length, in 1511, the schismatic Council of Pisa, held by the disaffected cardinals under the auspices of Louis XII, forced the hand of Julius II, and to checkmate it, he issued a summons for a general council to assemble in Rome, April 19, 1512, to resist the schism, to reform the morals of laity and clergy, to bring about peace between Christian princes, and to prosecute the war with the Turk. Not much was to be hoped of a council held in Rome under papal presidency, but Europe took the project seriously. The instructions of the Spanish delegates ordered them to labor especially for the reformation of the Curia, for the chief objection of the infidels to Christianity arose from the public and execrable wickedness of Rome, for which the Pope was accountable. It was apparently to forestall action that, in March 1512, Julius appointed a commission of eight cardinals to reform the Curia and its officials, and on March 30th he issued a bull reducing the heavy burden of fees and other exactions. The Fifth Council of the Lateran assembled a little later than the time appointed, and its earlier sessions were devoted to obliterating the traces of the schism and attacking the pragmatic sanction of France. Julius died February 21st, 1513, and to his successor, Leo X, was transferred the management of the council. 
To him Gianfrancesco Pico addressed a memorial recapitulating the evils to be redressed. The worship of God, he said, was neglected. The churches were held by pimps and catamites. The nunneries were dens of prostitution. Justice was a matter of hatred or favour. Piety was lost in superstition. The priesthood was bought and sold. The revenues of the church ministered only to the vilest excesses, and the people were repelled from religion by the example of their pastors. The council made at least a show of attacking these evils. On May the 3rd, 1514, it approved a papal decree which, if enforced, would have cured a small portion of the abuses. But all subsequent efforts were blocked by quarrels between the different classes to be reformed. The council sat until March 1517, and the disappointment arising from its dissolution without accomplishing anything of the long-desired reform may well have contributed to the eagerness with which the Lutheran revolt was soon afterwards hailed. For thoughtful men everywhere must have been convinced that nothing short of revolution could put an end to corruption so inexpugnably established. It was the emphatic testimony of interested observers that the Roman Curia, in its immovable adherence to its evil ways, was the real cause of the uprising. The papal nuncio, Aleander, writing from the Diet of Worms in 1521, says that the priests are foremost in the revolt, not for Luther's sake, but because through him they can gratify their long-cherished hatred of Rome. Nine Germans out of ten are for Luther, and the tenth man longs for the destruction of the Roman Curia. Cardinal Albrecht of Mainz, about the same time, wrote to Pope Leo that it was rare to find a man who favoured the clergy, while a large portion of the priests were for Luther, and the majority were afraid to stand forth in support of the Roman Church. So deep was the hatred felt for the Curia and the papal decrees. When Dr. Eck found that his disputatious zeal was a failure, he told Paul III that the heresy had arisen from the abuses of the Curia, that it had spread in consequence of the immorality of the clergy, and that it could only be checked by reform. Adrian VI, in his instructions for his legate at the Diet of Nuremberg in 1522, admitted the abominations habitual to the Holy See and promised their removal, but added that it would be a work of time, for the evil was too complex and too deeply rooted for a speedy cure. Meanwhile he demanded the execution of the papal sentence against Luther without awaiting the promised reform. But the German princes replied that this would simply cause rebellion, for the people would then despair of amendment. While thus the primary cause of the Reformation is to be sought in the all-pervading corruption of the Church and its oppressive exercise of its supernatural prerogatives, there were other factors conducing to the explosion. Sufficient provocation had long existed, and since the failure at Basel, no reasonable man could continue to anticipate relief from conciliar action. The shackles which for centuries had bound the human intellect had to be loosened, before there could be a popular movement of volume sufficient to break with the traditions of the past and boldly tempt the dangers of a new and untried career for humanity. The old reverence for authority had to be weakened, the sense of intellectual independence had to be awakened, and the spirit of inquiry and of more or less scientific investigation had to be created, before pious and devout men could reach the root of the abuses which caused so much indignation, and could deny the authenticity of the apostolical deposit 
on which had been erected a venerable and imposing structure of scholastic theology and papal autocracy it was the new learning and the humanistic movement which supplied the impulse necessary for this and they found conditions singularly favourable for their work the church had triumphed so completely over her enemies that the engines of repression had been neglected and had grown rusty while the popes were so engrossed in their secular schemes and ambition that they had little thought to waste on the possible tendencies of the fashionable learning which they patronized thus there came an atmosphere of free thought strangely at variance with the rigid dogmatism of the theologians and even in theology there was a certain latitude of discussion permissible for the tridentine decrees had not yet formulated into articles of faith the results of the debates of the schoolmen since the twelfth century it is a remarkable proof of the prevailing laxity that nicholas v commissioned gianozzo manetti to make a new translation of the bible from the original hebrew and greek thus showing that the vulgate was regarded as insufficient and that it enjoyed no such authority as that attributed to it at trent in view of this laxity it is not surprising that in italy the new learning assumed various fantastic shapes of belief the cult of the genius of rome by pomponioletto and his academy the platonism of marsilio ficino the practical denial of immortality by pomponazzi and the modified averroism of agostino nifo so long as the prophets of the curia or the authority of the pope remained undisputed there was little disposition to trouble the dreamers and speculators savonarola declares with some rhetorical exaggeration that culture had supplanted religion in the minds of those to whom the destinies of christianity were confided until they lost belief in god celebrated feasts of the devil and made a jest of the sacred mysteries in the polite court circles of leo x we are told a man was scarce accounted as cultured and well-bred unless he cherished a certain amount of heretical opinion and after luther's doctrines had become rigidly defined melancton is said to have looked back with a sigh to the days before the reformation as to a time when there was freedom of thought it is true that there was occasional spasmodic repression pico della mirandola because of thirteen heretical propositions among the nine hundred which he offered to defend in fourteen eighty seven was obliged to fly to spain and to make his peace by submission but as a rule the humanists were allowed to air their fences in peace when the disputations of the schools on the question of the future life became overbold and created scandal the lateran council in fifteen thirteen forbade the teaching of averroism and of the mortality of the soul but it did so in terms which placed little restraint on philosophers which shielded themselves behind a perfunctory declaration of submission to the judgment of the church in the intellectual ferment at work throughout europe it was however impossible that many devout christians should not be led to question details in the theology on which the schoolmen had erected the structure of sacerdotal supremacy gregor heimburg was a layman who devoted his life to asserting the superiority of the secular power to the ecclesiastical lending the aid of his learning and eloquence to the anti-papal side of all the controversies which raged from the time of the council of basel until he died in fourteen seventy two absolved at last from the excommunication which he had richly earned 
1479 the errors of Pedro de Osma, a professor of Salamanca, were condemned by the Council of Alcalá. They consisted in denying the efficacy of indulgences, the divine origin and necessity of confession, and the infallibility and irresponsible autocracy of the papacy. The same year witnessed the trial at Mainz by the Cologne Inquisitor of Johann Rucherat of Wessel, a professor in the University of Erfurt and one of the most distinguished theologians of Germany. Erfurt was noted for its humanism and for its adherence to the doctrine of the superiority of councils over popes, and Johann Rucherat had been uttering his heretical opinions for many years without opposition. He would probably have been allowed to continue in peace until the end, but for the mortal quarrel between the realists and the nominalists, and the desire of the Dominican Thomists to silence a nominalist leader. He rejected the authority of tradition and of the fathers. He carried predestination to a point which stripped the church of its power over salvation, and he even struck the word filioque from the creed. He was of course condemned and forced to recant, but the contemporary reporter of the trial apparently considers that his only serious error was the one concerning the procession of the Holy Ghost, and he cites various men of learning who held that most of the condemned articles could be maintained. More fortunate was Johann Wessel of Groningen, a prominent theological teacher who entertained heretical notions as to confession, absolution, and purgatory, and denied that the Pope could grant indulgences, for God deals directly with men, doctrines as revolutionary as those of Luther, yet he was allowed to die peacefully in 1489, held in great honor by the community. Still more significant of the spiritual unrest of the period was a Sorbonique, or thesis for the doctorate, presented to the University of Paris in 1485 by a priest named Jean Leyer, whose audacity reduced the hierarchy, including the Pope, to simple priesthood, and rejected confession, absolution, indulgences, fasting, the obligation of celibacy, and the authority of tradition. The extreme difficulty encountered in procuring the condemnation of these dangerous heresies, which finally required the intervention of Innocent VIII, is a noteworthy symptom of the time, and equally so is the fact that the Bishop of Meux, selected by Innocent as one of the judges in the case, was at that moment under censure by the university for reviving the condemned doctrine of the insufficiency of the sacraments in polluted hands. In 1498, an observantine friar named Jean Vitrier, in sermons at Tournai, went even further and taught that it was a mortal sin to listen to the mass of a concubinary priest. He also rejected the intercession of saints and asserted that pardons and indulgences were the offspring of hell, and the money paid for them was employed in the maintenance of brothels. The Tournai authorities were apparently powerless, and referred these utterances to the University of Paris, which extracted from them sixteen heretical propositions. But it does not appear that the audacious preacher was punished. It was still more ominous of the future when men were found ready to endure martyrdom in denial of the highest mysteries of the faith as when, in 1491, Jean Langlois, priest of St. Crispin in Paris, while celebrating Mass, cast the consecrated elements on the floor and trampled on them, giving as a reason that the body and the blood of Christ were not in them, and persisting in his error to the stake. 
Similar was the obstinacy of Aymon Picard in 1503, who at the Feast of Saint-Louis in the Saint-Chapelle snatched the host from the celebrant and dashed it on the floor, for he too refused to recant and he was burned. To what extent humanism was responsible for these heresies it would not be easy now to determine, save in so far as it had stimulated the spirit of inquiry and destroyed the reverence for authority. These influences are plainly observable in the career of Jacques Lefebvre d'Ataple, the precursor of the Reformation in France, who commenced as a student of philosophy and in 1492 visited Italy to sit at the feet of Marsilio Ficino, Ermolao Barbaro, Pico della Mirandola, and Angelo Poliziano, but who, when he turned to the study of scripture, expressed the pious wish that the profane classical writings should be burned rather than be placed in the hands of youth. His commentary on the Pauline Epistles, printed in 1512, was the first example of casting aside the scholastic exegesis for a treatment in which tradition was rejected, and the freedom of individual judgment was exercised as a matter of right. This led him to a number of conclusions which Luther only reached gradually in the disputations forced upon him in defence of his first step. But this protest against the established sacerdotalism brought no persecution on Lefebvre until the progress of the Reformation in Germany aroused the authorities to the danger lurking in such utterances, when the Sorbonne in 1521 had no difficulty in defining twenty-five heretical propositions in the commentaries. Proceedings were commenced against him, but he was saved by the favour of Francis I and Marguerite of Navarre. There were other humanists, less spiritual than Lefebvre, who exercised enormous influence in breaking down reverence for tradition and authority, and asserting the right of private judgment without giving in their adhesion to the Reformation. They had a narrow and a perilous path to thread. Willibald Pirkheimer was no Lutheran, but his name stood first on the list of these selected for excommunication by Eck when he returned from Rome as the bearer of the portentous bull Exurge Domine. More fortunate was the foremost humanist Erasmus, whose unrivalled intellect rendered him a power to be courted by Pope and princes, though he was secretly held responsible as the primary cause of the revolt. In 1522, Adrian VI adjured him to come to the rescue of the bark of the church, struggling in the tempest sent by God in consequence mainly of the sins of the clergy, and assured him that this was a province reserved to him by God. Yet in 1527, Edward Lee, then English ambassador to Spain and subsequently Archbishop of York, drew up a list of 21 heresies extracted from the writings of Erasmus, ranging from Arianism to the repudiation of indulgences, the veneration of saints, pilgrimages, and relics. At this very moment, however, Erasmus, frightened at the violence of the reformers, was writing to Pirkheimer that he held the authority of the church so high that, at her bidding, he would accept Arianism and Pelagianism, for the words of Christ were not of themselves sufficient for him. Luther himself had in some sort a humanistic pedigree. The Franciscan Paul Scriptoris, professor at Tübingen, learned in Greek and mathematics, used confidentially to predict that a reformation was at hand in which the church would be forced to reject the scholastic theology and return to the simplicity of primitive belief. But when he permitted these views to find expression in his sermons, 
the chapter of his order took steps to discipline him, and he fled in 1502 to Italy, where he died. He was the teacher of Johann von Staupitz, Konrad Pelikan, and others subsequently prominent in the movement. Staupitz became the vicar of Luther's Augustinian order, and was warmly esteemed by the elector Frederick of Saxony, so that he was enabled to afford to Luther efficient protection during the earlier years of the revolt. He was a humanist, strongly imbued with the views of the German mystics of the 14th century, and all mysticism is, in its essence, incompatible with sacerdotalism. In his Nachfolgung des Sterbens Jesu Christi, printed in 1515, he denied, like Erasmus, the efficacy of external observances, condemning the doctrine as a kind of Judaism. In 1516, at Nuremberg, he preached a series of sermons warning against reliance on confessions, for justification comes alone from the grace of God. These were greeted with immense applause, they were printed in both Latin and German, and a Sodalitas Staupitiana was organized, embracing many of the leading citizens, among whom Albrecht Dürer was numbered. The next year, at Munich, he inculcated the same doctrines with equal success, with equal success, and he embodied his views in the work von der Liebe Gottes, dedicated to the Duchess Kuningunda of Bavaria of which four editions were speedily exhausted, showing the receptivity of the popular mind for anti-sacerdotal teachings. It was some time before Luther advanced as far as Staupitz had already done, and then it was largely through the study of the 14th-century mystics and Staupitz's work on the love of God. End of section 66